So um, this is actually a really special week for Laura and I. In fact, today is a very special day because today is exactly one uh, year ago that we got off a plane at LAX and uh, started our adventure. Yeah. Um, uh, LAX is a very overwhelming place to step off a plane. And, um, and yeah, we have uh, just been so grateful uh, for all that God's done. I remember uh, a year ago thinking, oh my goodness, what's it going to be like? I have no idea about LA and how it works and any of those things. Um, but we had such a sense that God was calling us to be here. And isn't it amazing to be able to look around at, like this and see what God has built and what God is building in this place? And one of the things I've just been so thankful for as I've been out praying this week and doing this thing called Lent that the church is just going into now is I've been so just overwhelmed by God's generosity in our lives, by the kindness that God has shown us in our lives, by the way that God has provided like housing and schools and those kind of level things, but also just by the way that his presence has been with us this last year. But also as I've been thinking about generosity, I've also just been overwhelmed by the way that this community has cared for us and cared for others. You know, when you move five and a half thousand miles from home, it's not always fun. It's not always easy. But actually, the way that this community have been generous to us, who have literally provided food for us, have provided help and kindness and prayers, it's just amazing. So thank you um, from us, from Laura and I and from the kids for the way that you've looked after us this last year. Um, but today I want to think about generosity. I want to think about a God who is extravagant in his generosity to us and a God who calls us to be extravagantly generosity, generous in our way we treat other people. Um, but the bad news is this. The bad news is it's Sunday morning and in order to talk about generosity, I have to talk about a topic that nobody ever wants to talk about in church, right? Nobody wants to talk about money. Nobody ever wants to hear the G giving word, all those kind of things. And already you might be new going, oh man, I should have come next week. But I'm really sorry if you feel like that. This is a topic that I believe though that God wants to do something amazing in our lives through. That God has blessing and healing and adventure for us beyond anything we can either think or imagine if we will enter into his story of generosity. And so we're going to think about that a little bit today. But I realize if you do feel a bit bad, you might feel bad for a number of reasons. It might be that you've been involved in churches in the past where actually money has just been spoken of badly. Maybe you felt pressured. Maybe you felt guilty. Maybe you've never really been taught anything helpful whatsoever about generosity before. Maybe you, you feel bad just because actually living in LA is a hard thing to do financially. Maybe the idea of just paying your rent this, much, this month is a big deal. Maybe like the kind of ups and downs of working in some of the industries that are around LA means that you just, man, money is a difficult and a hard subject to talk about. But it is actually a subject that the Bible has a lot to say about. There's a lot in the Bible about money. Um, if I told you that there are um, 500 verses in the Bible about prayer, which we talked about last week, if I said that there were 500 verses about faith in the Bible, how many verses do you think there might be about money, possessions, and giving? Any guess? 2,000. 2, Someone is clearly reading my slides <laughs> at the back. There are exactly 2,000, or thereabouts, 2,000 verses. Congratulations, whoever you are at the back. Um, I don't know, but you have the gift of prophecy, that is for sure. <laughs> Superb. 2,000 verses in the Bible about money, possessions, and giving. Um, 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus tells 
are about money, about possessions, about giving. One sixth of all the text in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are around this subject. Now, I think it's the, that's the reason, not because God is short of a dollar or two. It's not because the creator of the universe goes, right, I'm going to need a financial strategy to make sure that I have enough money. That's not how God works, but it is because God understands the impact, the weight, the stress, the things that get to us around these kind of subjects. And if that was true when God wrote, you know, when the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, whatever, how much more would God want to say that to us, speak into our lives about money, now that we have Venmo and mortgages and credit cards and Zella and all of those kind of things that we have to deal with as well? But I think part of the problem we struggle with this is because when we talk about giving, when we talk about generosity, we tend to ask the wrong question. That there's an inherent question that goes around my mind or historically, and maybe you might relate to it too. And the question goes like this. Okay, if I'm going to be in a church, what is the minimum amount of my money that I need to give to God and all the church in order to appease or please God or the church? Now that is a miserable question. <laughs> That is a very guilt-ridden question. And I want to show you today that there is a so much more adventurous, exciting way to think about how we address this topic. And I'm going to ask Shannon. She's going to bring, come and bring our reading for today, which is from Acts chapter 4. At the end of Acts chapter 4, if you've got it in your Bibles, you're very welcome to do that. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Okay. Acts 4.32-37. through 37. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Great. Thank you for doing that. Um, if you're particularly perceptive, you'll notice that um, today we are ending our little journey through the first bit of the book of Acts, and then we're transitioning into this thing called Lent that you may never have even heard of before, but it's the time in the kind of annual church's calendar when we think about Easter and we get ready, we prepare our hearts. And so that's the kind of little transition that we're going to be making um, this week. So the first problem with the question that I asked a few minutes ago is that I made an inherent assumption that everything I have comes from me, that everything is mine. When in fact, what verse 32 of the passage that Shannon just read for us says is this, nobody claimed that any of their possessions was their own. How do you feel about that? Think for a minute, what is the most important possession that you own? If it's a wedding ring or something like that, think about something else because that's a symbolic thing. But, but think for a minute. What is the most valuable possession you have? Anyone brave enough to tell me what their most valuable possession is? Phone. Totally. Millennial LA. Phone. Done. Anyone else? Got anything else? A house? Anything else? Car. Definitely LA. Yeah, anything else? 
Kids, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. I'm getting, getting into an interesting realm. <laughs> I was like, it's good. So we're told all the time, aren't we, things like this. You know, money makes the world go round. You are what you wear. You are what you have in your pocket, in what phone you have. You are what you eat. You are what you drive. You are where you live. You are what school your kids go to. You know, you are what you have achieved financially in life. That We're told that money is important. And if we have money, we must have earned it. We must have deserved it, that we must have done something right in life. We probably are the people who were successful because we have money. But in fact, 1 Chronicles uh, 29 in the Old Testament of the Bible says this, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, for you are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. Now, we might go, hold on a minute, that's not fair. That's not fair, because I found in my life that if I sit at home, I don't have any money. If I don't get up in the morning, then I don't get paid, which means I don't have anything to deliver on. I have earned what I have earned. Verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Isn't that challenging? That the very reason that we can do anything in life is because God has given us the opportunity and the tools and the ability to do it. I was thinking recently, like, what is it that meant that I got to be born into a family where there was education, where there was healthcare, where they could teach me to speak and learn and all those kind of things? What meant that I didn't grow up in Sudan or in North Korea or in Rwanda or one of the incredible numbers of war zones around the world today? What meant that I got to live in a place like England or the Far East or now in LA? Uh, This week, I, for the first time, got contact lenses, which means I can actually see you all. I had to have very specialist contact lenses because I have terrible eyes. But because I live in LA, I have the ability to see, which I wouldn't get if I lived in most of the places around the world. We are people who are astonishingly blessed. But if you are like me, you will forget that very quickly because it doesn't always feel like that. If you lined up all the people across the whole world today, richest to poorest, we, all of us in this room, would be at the very richest end. And I'm not talking about the fact that we have like two cars on our drive, or we have a great house, or a great apartment, or we've got a bank account full of cash. I'm simply talking about this. We have electricity, we have water, we have sewage, we have access to education, and we live off more than $2 every day, which is the average of what the world lives off. We are people who are blessed. God has blessed us first out of his abundance. There's a guy called J. John. He's a friend of Vintage's. He's a very funny guy, but he tells a great story about this. He said, there's a guy who was at the airport, let's say he was at LAX, and he's a little bit early for his flight. So he thinks, I've got to do something. Uh, I know, I'll get a coffee and some donuts, because that's a good thing to do. So he goes to the little shop, he gets some coffee and donuts. He looks around for somewhere to sit in the airport, and there's only one seat in the whole waiting area, and it's on one of these little two-people tables across from another businessman. He thinks, hmm, that's a bit too much personal involvement for two men, but I'll sit down because it's the only seat. So he sits down on the chair takes his jacket off, puts his bag down, relaxes, gets his phone out, reaches into the bag in the middle of the table, the donuts. He 
takes a sip of coffee, takes one of the little donuts and starts to eat it. Now, the man who's sitting across the table to this point has not made any contact with him whatsoever, but at that moment, the man across the table looks up, smiles, also reaches out and takes one of the donuts from the man's bag. This is serious stuff. Now, the first man is angry, but being a man, he's not immediately going to say anything about it. He just kind of stands there, looks a bit gruff. To make a point, though, he reaches back out to the bag of donuts, takes another donut angrily from the bag, and moves the bag of donuts right to his edge of the table, right on the very edge, so it's completely clear whose donuts these are. Gets his phone back out, starts scrolling through his emails and his social media and stuff with his arms crossed, because he's really cross. The other man on the other side, completely unfazed by any of this, reaches out across the table and takes the last donut from the bag. Now, the first man is completely, like, he's inwardly just going crazy at this point. He's thinking, this is a donut thief. Maybe this guy is clinically insane. What's going on? This man's like one banana short of a bunch or something. This is not okay. But before he can say anything, like, the announcement comes on and the flight is called. So the, the man across the table stands up, smiles, and just walks off into the distance. Now, the first man is just so angry, it takes him a moment to gather his thoughts. And he's about to charge after the other guy when his flight is called in the opposite direction. At that moment, he puts on his coat angrily. He puts his phone in his pocket. He reaches down to pick up his bag, only to find that on the floor next to him is his bag of donuts. <laughs> the moral of the story, J. John is, says, is this. God owns all the donuts. <laughs> God owns all the donuts. You know, this man all the way along thought, oh, I'm being stolen from. God is taking my, this guy's taking my stuff. When actually, this man was sharing his stuff. We think all the time that everything we have is ours when actually it is God's and he has given it to us first. When we think about generosity, before we can even begin to think about generosity, we have to realize that everything is God's. And whenever we think about giving, it always is giving back of the thing that God gave to us first. But the problem is this, is that money, possessions, all this stuff, it weighs down on us. You know, when I was 18, I probably didn't care that much about money, if I'm honest. But now, when you have mortgage and you have car payments, and whatever else it might be, money starts to weigh down. So how do we start to unwind that story where we feel guilty and under pressure and all of those kind of things in the area of our finances? Well, there are three things which generosity does which I want to look at today. The first is this. Generosity changes our hearts. Generosity changes our hearts. The way that we break the huge power of stuff and money in our lives has always actually looked exactly the same. It's looked the same from Abraham through to us, and it involves giving, giving what we have away. That as God has blessed us, we are people who are called to give away. When we give regularly through a church or to a charity, what we're doing first and foremost is we're praying that God is changing our hearts. In verse 34 that we just read a few minutes ago, it says this, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anybody who had need. Richard Foster, who's a very famous author, he says, when we talk about money, we have to do this. We must dethrone it. We must laugh at it. We must give it away. We need to find ways to shout no to the God of money. We must engage in the most profane act of all, giving it away. 
The powers that energize money cannot abide by the most unnatural of acts, giving. That as God extravagantly gives to us, our call is to give of our first and our best. Because what we're doing when we do that is we are saying simply this, money does not own me. When God was uh, instituting the people of Israel in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, the law, he said to them, one of the first things he said to them was this, I am going to ask you to do this thing called tithing. Now, tithing is just an old word, and it meant a tenth. But what actually they did was every time there was a harvest in the land, this was the time when they got all the food that they needed to live off. This was all of their income. They would set aside the very first tenth of their income, their their harvest, and they would take it to the temple. And some of that money, some of that crop, was used to pay for the temple to operate. Some of it was used so that there could be food for the priests and all of those kind of things. Some of it went to the poor, just exactly like it said in the parable in the passage today. And the third part of it was just literally burnt. Animals, crops, was burnt. Now, I don't know how you'd feel if you gave money and it was literally just burnt in front of your eyes, but this was a statement that the Israelites made to say, God is in control and we want to worship him with the first and the best of everything we have. Now, what people don't tend to talk about in churches is, in fact, there wasn't one tithe. There were actually three tithes in the Old Testament. And scholars think that probably people gave something between 20 and 50% of all of their income in this way. Now, I don't know about you, but I found that astonishingly challenging. I found that difficult. I find that hard even to read. But they were making a statement that God is good and he comes first in life. Now, we might go, hey, that's fine, Ben, that's just hard and horrible, and and actually, we don't live under the old covenant, we don't live in the Old Testament times, we are free in grace. And if you think that, you're absolutely right. But it's always good, when you think about the Old Testament, to ask this question, what did Jesus have to say? And when Jesus starts to talk about money, interestingly, in this culture of tithing and all those kind of things, Jesus says this, hey, there's this rich man. He's a guy who has loads, and he comes to the temple and brings his tithe, this huge sack of money, and he plonks it down looking really proud and arrogant in the temple because it's such a lot of money. And then a little widow walks in the back quietly with two coins, and she lays the two coins down as her offering. And Jesus says, which of the two is giving any sort of worship? And of course, the answer is the widow, because the widow is not giving of the little that she can do without. She's giving of her first and her best and her all. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is impossible, just in case you're wondering, than it is for a rich person to enter with the kingdom of God. Jesus offers us such high level of challenge about how we view money and possessions and our stuff. And again, it's not because he needs money, because Jesus says to us that the love of money, being obsessed by money, is the very thing that stops us having a total and complete love of God. And so if we want to be people who are generous in every area of our life, if we want to be set free from the burden of being weighed down by financial pressures, incredibly in the kingdom of God, God says to us this, give Give of our first and our best and see what God will do. Now, that is hard, I recognize. 
That is difficult when we, some of us are live in debt, when some of us feel so weighed down. But actually, there is something, or well, two other things that are so incredibly beautiful and good about how we are called into generosity. Not only does it change our heart, but generosity, secondly, changes the world around us. I uh, was a businessman far before I was ever a pastor. And one of the things I so loved about being in business was the ability to invest to see a return. So if you're a businessman, it generally goes like this. There's an opportunity. I can put some money in so that I'm going to get some more money out at the other end. And being a businessman, that was kind of fun. But what I've come to realize in my later years is that there is something about investing in a kingdom sense that is so much better than that. We notice in uh, today's verses, it says this, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy person among them. That the invitation of generosity is actually a direct invitation to play our part in the purposes and plans of God. I've said this before and you know it. God doesn't need us. God is perfectly powerful and clever and capable of doing whatever he wants, but astonishingly, God invites us into his story and lets us play a part. And as we invest, we get to see the results that are not financial always, but they are kingdom. They are eternal things. I was um, thinking recently, I was thinking that I don't actually know who to thank in my life, that when I was a kid, the church put some money together and hired a youth pastor so that somebody could tell me about Jesus. I don't know who to thank. I'll never know. And I bet you even those people probably don't even know what they did but I became a Christian. I don't know who to thank that when I was a student at university in a very poor city in the United Kingdom, that group of people in that church clubbed together and they hired a student worker and that student worker walked with me the journey of faith through my university years and I managed to hold on being a Christian through being at university. Like, I don't know who to thank for that. But I am totally spurred on by the idea that one day people might say of us, hey, I don't even know who to thank. That those people in vintage Pasadena, you know, when they when they gave faithfully and we were able, they were they hired a youth pastor that actually they told my mum and dad about Jesus. And because they told my mum and dad about Jesus, my whole family are now followers. I don't know who to thank. I'm spurred on by the idea that people's lives are going to be transformed as we do ministry together in this place, which is going to have an impact for generations to come. Pete Gregg, who I spoke of last week, he's an international author, he's a great speaker, incredibly prophetic voice. He actually prophesied over this church a few months ago. And he said, Ben, you need to know that whole family trees are going to be rewritten through the ministry of Vintage Pasadena. Isn't that incredible? Incredible. People will say of us one day, I don't know who to thank that they stepped out in faith and proclaimed the good news of Jesus in Pasadena. Not because we are clever and gifted and brilliant, but because God has invited us to play an active part in his story. Now, I know that, you know, that feels hard because I'm literally standing at the front of a church going, oh, you know, you should give money to a church and I'm the pastor and, you know, all those kind of things. But I want to tell you, you know, here at Vintage, there are no sugar daddies. There's nobody writing all the checks. There's no one person who's underwriting the cost of vintage Pasadena for the years to come. We have a huge vision for what we know that God wants to do in Pasadena. And we know that it's on us. The very first of my income each month always goes back to the church. And it's a statement. It's to say that God is in control. You know, we, after Easter, are going to run the Alpha course. 
The Alpha course is our chance to invite people from totally different backgrounds to come and hear, have a great dinner in a nice venue and hear the good news of Jesus and discuss their questions of life, the universe and everything. In order to do that, we have to raise enough money to hire a venue and feed quite a large number of people for eight weeks. We don't have that money. But I have no problem asking anybody for that money because I know that these are the things that can internally change a person's destiny. You know, here, here on our staff team, all of us, we live off the tightest budgets personally that we can ever live off. This is not a church where the pastor's going to fly in and on a helicopter, although I might fly in on a plane. No, no, I'm never, never, it's never going to happen. There is nobody getting rich through vintage Pasadena. Nobody gets to fund anything except for us because we get to be part of God's story as we do it together. So generosity changes our hearts. Generosity changes the world. And then as if that wasn't enough, generosity changes our situations. Because if at this point you're going, well, Ben, that's fine, but I have no money, I'm nothing, I'm just never going to work. And I want to tell you this, that when we give, actually our lives start to change radically. In 2 Corinthians 9, it says this, God loves a cheerful giver. And as we give, verse 8, God is able to bless you abundantly. The prophet Malachi, who was writing in the Old Testament in a time of Israel's history when God's people were having a really hard time, surprisingly says this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, we have to be really careful in this area because some people have misquoted this passage to tell you that if you ever go into a church and put $10 in the collection, in the offering, that amazingly you're going to have $1,000 in your bank account when you get home. And then if you've ever tried it, uh, it might work. Um, It might not, to be honest, because that is not what God promises to us. But what I have come to realize in my own life is simply this. You can never outgive God. You can't do it. It's actually impossible to do it. And I want to share with you a little bit of our story. And I'm very hesitant to do it because if I share this story, it will sound like, oh, the pastor's being super holy and all those kind of things and he must get, have this all sorted. And I can promise you that we don't have it all sorted. But this is an area of our life that God has brought incredible breakthrough and transformation. And so I want to share a little bit of what's happened. So when Laura and I got married, one of the things we wanted to say as we got married was that we wanted to tithe, we wanted to give of the first of our our income. And to be honest, it was easy. We both had full-time jobs, we had almost no financial commitment to anything, it was super easy, and we were able, we both had really good jobs, we had lots of income coming, it was fine. The problem for us came when I went to seminary. Because the way it works in the Anglican church is this, is that when you go off to seminary, they say to you, you need to give up all your income. You need to give up all of your uh, career path. You need to basically surrender everything, and you will then just get a little bit of money each month in order for you to live. And I thought, hey, well, if God's in it, that's totally fine. The problem for us came when I saw that the amount of money that we were going to get each month was exactly equivalent to the mortgage payments on our house. So I thought, okay, well, the good news is is that we're going to have somewhere to live. The bad news is we're not going to have any food or anything else. But if God's in it, it's okay, we'll just carry on. 
A few weeks later, as we got a bit into the story, we found out there was a little bit more to that and that there was a little bit more money on offer. So we thought, okay, well, at least this way we're going to be able to not only have some degree, somewhere to live, but we may even get some rice occasionally or something like that to, to live off. But we thought, okay, it's fine. If God's in it, we'll, we'll go with it. But then the question came, well, what to do about our giving? You know, because by that point, we were like, well, we wanted to tithe over here. We wanted to like, invest into some charities and some different kind of missionaries around the world. And I thought, well, what do I do? Do I just like, write a big line through it and say, well, we're just going to drop everything to a tenth of what we currently get in? Do I do nothing at all? What, what do I do? Now, this is not me in any way preaching to you because I'm not telling you to do this. I'm just telling you what we do. But as I went to do exactly that, I felt God say to me, hey, Ben, you know that monthly amount that's going out? Just leave it. Just leave it. I thought, well, God, there's no way that we could do that. There's literally no financial possibility that we could even eat next month if we don't reduce our giving. But I thought, well, okay, one month, I'll leave it and see what happens. And a month went past, and we didn't starve. And then another month went past, and another month went past. And before I knew it, I suddenly realized that not only was money not running out, but actually we were starting to save money at a rapid rate. Now, it wasn't that money was just coming in through the letterbox. Like, sometimes that can happen. That wasn't our experience. But is that when someone go, oh, Ben, you're a, you're a student, and um, you're training, and you've got kids. Oh, there's this grant that you can apply for over here. Or there's this little coupon for this over here. Or there's this little pot of money, or this little pot of money. And after a while, we realized that we were saving money faster than we'd ever saved it at any point in our married life. In fact, not only were we able to pay, off our, pay our monthly mortgage, we were actually able to double pay our monthly mortgage for a while. And then two years after starting seminary, I had to sit down with Laura and say, Laura, we've still got a really big problem. Because the problem we have is that actually um, we're still saving money at a rapid rate. What are we supposed to do? And the only thing we could think to do was, well, we better give some more money away. And so we upped our monthly giving. Now, that was pretty amazing in itself. But then horror struck. Because as I uh, finished training, Laura then finished her job completely. We went off to another church. I was a newly ordained pastor, tiny salary, standing up in front of a church that had no money and which were looking to raise a lot of money for a building project. And I realized that I had to tell the story of what I did, that I had to stand up in front of them and tell you that if you give, God will outgive you. And I thought, I'm in so much trouble because we can't make our books balance right now. We are going to be in debt if we give at the level that we are now giving at. In fact, worse than that, I realized that the church needed to raise more money, and if I could tell, had to tell the church they needed to raise more money, the only thing I could do was to give more money myself. And so I stood up in front of them and said, I'm really sorry, this is very risky, but I'm going to tell you that this is my story. It was never going to work. Do you know what happened? God came through. Now, we've never in our married life ever managed to be without because anything we have ever given to God, God has outstripped us by a mile. Now, I'm not telling you that God wants to make you rich. I'm not telling you that God's going to make you a millionaire. But what I do totally and passionately believe is that God is more generous than you are. That anything that you can ever give of your finance or your money or your time, God has things that he wants to do with those things. And in fact, there are things that God wants to do in your life that can only happen if you and I will unclench our fists a little bit and be people who give even when we can't see the end results. Rick Warren, who's a very famous author, wrote The Purpose Driven Life, which so many of you will have read. He said, I heard him speaking a while ago, and he said this, he said, when you write a book like The Purpose Driven Life, you become very wealthy. Let's just be honest. It's an international bestseller. 
But he said, by that point, the reason I am sure and I know that God allowed that to happen was because by that point, I was giving away 95% of my income through giving. Now, I find that astonishingly challenging. I am not there yet. I am like at the other end of the spectrum. But I know, and I'm committed with Laura, to every year give a little bit more than I did the year before. Not because I can see it, not because I can afford it, but because I know that as I step out, God is going to do something better than I can do. God has blessings for us in these areas. But it's not even just enough that God changes our hearts. It's not even enough that God changes the world around us. But as we give, God changes our own financial circumstances. So let me just say this as, as I uh, come in to close, because I absolutely don't want you to feel guilty. I hate it if you came this morning and felt under any pressure. But just two things I want to say as I close is this. The first thing is that when we give, it's really important that we don't micromanage God's economy as to where it goes. Um, when I was starting seminary, one of the things I had to do was to clear down a whole bunch of old business relationships. And there was one guy, and he owed us thousands, thousands and thousands. And um, I had to say to him, hey, man, look, you know, I, I really need that. It was totally above board. He knew he owed the money. It was to Laura and I personally. But he was just like, no, I can't pay you this month. I can't pay you next month. I'll pay you next month. I'll pay you next month. I'll pay you next month. And it never happened. And after like a whole while, I got really angry about it, like really seriously cross. In fact, I remember going to see one of my friends and saying to him, hey, um, I need a Christian lawyer. Can you get me a Christian lawyer? I don't know why I thought getting a Christian lawyer would help the suing process any better. But I thought, I'm gonna, I, need a, I need a Christian lawyer to do this for me because I've got to get this money. And I walked into my seminary, which I just started at, and the first words that were uttered at the seminary that morning were, were this. It was all about this concept of giving open-handedly and in worship. And I just felt God say to me this, Hey, Ben, when did I ask you to become the micromanager of my kingdom resources? I only ever asked you to give. And so begrudgingly and totally in a bad mood, I got my phone out and I wrote him a message and said, hey man, I don't know um, what you're doing. You need to know that you hurt me. You need to know that we're really struggling because of this, but you also need to know that I'm writing your debt off right now. And I'm doing it because I love Jesus and he loves you. And that's the end of the story. Now, I don't know on that day whether my friend got down on his knees, repented, gave thanks to Jesus. I've never actually spoken to him ever again since, not because we're angry, just never had a chance to speak to him after that moment. But what I have found in that moment was this astonishing sense of peace when I realized that I'm not supposed to micromanage God's budgets. I'm just supposed to give. We live in a society that's so much about control. We're supposed to have a financial plan and a 10-year strategy, and we're supposed to hit the markers and all that kind of stuff. And I've just come to realize in my own life that what I'm supposed to do is just be an investor in the kingdom, and God will work out where it goes. You know, I'm ashamed, actually, that as I've looked back at my own life, that there have been times when I've gone to churches and I've gone, do you know what, I'm, I'm going to give, but I'm only actually going to give if it's my favorite project. It's like, if I have any sniff that the church is investing in something that I don't like the look of, like an organ, I'm out. I'm out. But instead, what God wants me to do is just open up, open up my heart. You know, Vintage, if you want to know what's in the Vintage budget, I will tell you. You can buy me a coffee. I will tell you every line item in our budget. You'll be shocked at how small it is. But you can do that. Totally fine. It's open accounting. But I do want to encourage you, if this is your church, just to give because it's worship and not because um, you have some pet project. And then finally, I just want to say this, is that it isn't always more than money. 
I have spoken for half an hour about money, and I realize I've done that. But the story of generosity is always more than the story of money. That when we think about generosity, it's always a story of our whole lives. But it's also about money. That on one hand, it's not a, you can't say, okay, I'm a generous person. I do all this stuff with my time, with my house, with my possessions, all that kind of stuff. Therefore, I'm, I have no interest in talking to you about any sort of giving. But equally, we can't be people who just say, well, I'm going to give financially and I'm going to sit back and I'm doing nothing else. That's my whole story. But the story of generosity is far bigger than the story about money. The story of generosity is about our whole beings, that God wants to invite us into a story where he gets the first and the best of everything in every area of our life. And as we do that, our hearts are changed. As we do that, the world around us is changed. And as we do that, even our own situations are changed.